You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and we've got about seven more episodes from the Edinburgh shows from last festival to bang out. But we're going to take a brief break from them now in order to sneak this one out that we recorded last Sunday at Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival. I've been trying to get Nick Helm on the show for ages. We've never managed to work the dates out and we finally sorted it. So I'm really pleased with this. I think we started to get to the bottom of what he's all about. And I think Nick is fascinating. Oh, no, I just remembered that's the drinking game, isn't it? Whenever Stu says fascinating or refers to being a busker, (laughs) then take a drink. There's probably others as well. Let's chuck some suggestions in on Twitter, please. That was started by at Wateracre. Um, a dear friend of mine and uh, by all means rip the piss out of me and all the things I usually do that could actually be helpful Um, (laughs) anytime Stu is crippled with self-doubt drink anyway the point being I think what's really good about Nick other than his obvious brilliant talent and how funny he is is he has a very different take on the purpose of his comedy and it reminds me a little bit of Tom Parry from Pappy's from some of the stuff Tom said uh, in that Pappy's interview so you might want to listen back at that and see if it links I'm all of a lava, I'm a fluster, I'm leaving, I've got to go to France and do some gigs. Sorry, it's so hard being international jet setter. <laughs> yeah, France. Um, so, nonetheless, live at Firebug for Bottle Rocket Comedy as part of the Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival, this is the amazing Nick Helm. <laughs> I wish I'd thought to smoothly push the chair forward with my foot and then step from the chair onto the stage. I feel quite the prick. I'm nothing if not smooth. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Uh, the, uh, the sound man, Russell, saw the show that you've just done <laughs> he, here. He went livid. He, he checked. He's not going to drop the mic again, is he? And I went, no, he's not. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming. Rus- Russell. Yeah. The sound man, Russell. Russ? What? This is an ironic name, isn't it? <laughs> it's Russ, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I, I said it's fine that we don't make jokes, but his name is Russell the Soundman. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's like being a boom operator called Mike or something. <laughs> <clears throat> Carry on. <laughs> I will. So, um, thanks for coming. I always get really edgy before. I haven't done one of these since Edinburgh, and you were going to come on the show in Edinburgh. 
and uh, you weren't yeah. able to because you were on at the same time. Your show sort of like clashed with the last five minutes. Of yeah, something, something like that because I saw your show last time and had to leave five minutes before the end to run out here. That's right. And yeah. I, so I, I experienced what it was like to be one of the people that you scream abuse at as they're running out of your show <laughs> on arguably legitimate grounds. It's always legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> I always shout at people legitimately, I think, I feel. <laughs> I, think, I, I think I do, yeah. Okay, I, listen, before, before we get stuck in, let's... Uh, because there'll be people listening, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with you, and a lot yeah, of people yeah. have seen your act. There'll be for, people that don't know who the fuck I am. For people who don't know who the fuck you are, can you describe what it is you... I was going to say what you think you do. What do you think you do, Nick? Oh. <laughs> um... um <laughs> Oh, maybe I was the worst person to have on your show. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I try not to stop and think about it. Otherwise, it undoes like a jumper. Um, For the next hour, you're going to have to stop and think about it. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. Right, it's dawning on me what I've got to do now. Um, Yeah, I don't don't know really. I kind of um, try... Basically, what I do now is uh, a culmination of lots of failed gigs. Okay. So to describe what I do, I, I kind of, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of shouting and swearing. Oh, <laughs> but, I mean, what I, what I attempt to do is I try and do uh, a bit of everything in one show. I tr- I'm trying to do, like, a variety show. Okay. Um, uh, that's what my comedy is a stab at, trying to do pretty much everything that you can do on a stage. Sure. But it's more, it's not just about, I'm just trying to see it from the perspective of someone who hasn't seen you, and obviously there's loads of stuff available on YouTube, so there's no excuse for not seeing you. But for someone listening to this that hasn't seen it, like, for example, I read a review recently that described you as, I think it said something like, a heart-on-his-sleeve romantic having a nervous breakdown on stage. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> that's that's what I do. That's what it is. No, but that's that is what it is. It's always easier to look at something and describe it than it is to do it from the inside. You know, I mean, you try really hard to um, to do something new and original, and then Turner and Hooch has just come out and you've made canine. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, oh yeah, that's what I was making, Turner and Hooch. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's always easier to kind of look at what other people do and describe that than it is to kind of... But you, but you, but you are aware. You're aware of what you're doing. You know, you're aware of what you... Like, I think of your show as it's something that, like, you've built... And I say show as well, because I think of you more in the frame of doing an hour than I, than I do of doing fives or tens or twenties. I guess... You write shows that are complete. I guess I'm on the back foot here, just going what I do, because the majority of the people in here have just seen me struggle for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, and also, I mean, that's, that's quite interesting. A lot of these people have seen the show you, which is very different to you now. Yeah. And so it might be difficult for you to just sort of step away from the fact that they've just seen the you that you portray on stage. Yeah, basically, I mean, I have, um, I'm, I find previewing very difficult. So uh, whatever I do in the previews, it's always kind of like, um, it'd be really nice to preview what my final idea for a show is, which would be to have a huge set and not music and bells and whistles and poems and stuff like that but it takes a long time to write a poem let alone three poems five songs uh eight one-liners and 30 minutes of stand-up comedy and to do all of that simultaneously 
class design, costumes, <laughs> set. And when we say costumes and set, for people that haven't seen it, last year the focus was Evil Knievel. Yeah, so I had a huge Evil Knievel set and, um, and costumes uh, and like tearaway costumes and stuff like that. So it's like plate spinning because you've got to develop everything simultaneously. And so previewing is very difficult because not only are you not ever, be, ever able to preview the show until you get up to Edinburgh, um, it's just it falls so far away from your own expectations of what you're doing that you've literally just got to put on a brave face and kind of like you know pretend to people that this is the <laughs> this is all <laughs> intentional. But um, but isn't that yeah. I mean isn't that something that you do even when the show is there with everything in it and all the bells and whistles and the costume changes and the exercise bike and the motorbike or whatever you know, the stunts. Even then, the show is kind of about you failing to do a show. Yeah, that's all it is, really. It's kind of like me, kind of like uh, trying to put a brave face. I okay. So when I first had to do mm, my first five minutes, I think the first time I ever did stand-up comedy, uh, I tried to approach it, or in the back of my head, I had it as though I'm going to do five minutes. I'm going to do the best show that I've ever done going to be the best show that anyone's ever seen and then two minutes before I go on stage I've got dumps and then I have to go through with it and do it with a b- thanks mate so uh, <laughs> sorry just to clarify that's what actually happened or that's no, no, the no, premise that's, for it that's, that's the premise for what, gotcha. for what it is and so that when you when you go on to do 20 minutes you know you can have a bit more fun with it and play around with different levels and stuff and then when you do an hour well I mean I've done like five hours now uh, and so, so when you do an hour, that's kind of like, well, what could it be this time? And uh, I think the first time I did it, um, I was kind of on the verge of a, a nervous breakdown. The second time I did it, um, I was kind of... I, I think if you put all of my shows end-to-end, then they kind of tell kind of like a story. Like the character or whatever I do on stage, it's not really a character because it it's like an exaggerated part of me. Um, and that... Um, so that, first that, that kind of evolves uh, through each show. So, so I think with uh, I did a show called Bad Things Happen in Trees, and that was all about heartbreak. And Keep Hold of the Gold was all about putting a positive spin on things. And then Dare to Dream was about uh, moving on. And This Means War was about being uh, in denial and being bitter about you know brokenheartedness. And um, One Man Megamyth was all about literally going. Um, I'm fine, you know, I'm totally fine now, uh, but it was literally, that was the most nerve, you know, that was the most nervous breakdown sort of performance that I'd done, because okay. that was all about success and failure. Yes, so, and that, for people that didn't see it, the beginning of that show was a screen, like pr- the pre-show almost, was a screen that was showing the different years that you'd come to Edinburgh and how cruelly you'd been overlooked for the main awards well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, but but the thing is, you know, um, people think that. Uh, and I, I should say, just again, for people that haven't seen it, that was really funny. Like all of those things are getting laughs. It's not, you know, there, there is there is you kind of complaining, but it's. Well, no, I was a bit pissed off about the fact that people were laughing at that. Really, um, <laughs> um, no, it's just um, I think what people, I think. I'm not like I, I don't I don't tend to read press and I don't tend to read journalism, but some things get back to you and stuff like that. And um, uh, uh, people just don't seem to realise you know, what they say kind of affects you, and in a good way as much as a, a bad way. But somebody said in one of their reviews, um, 
well, uh, he's done some telly and he's done this. What's Nick Helm going to moan about now that he's all successful? Surely that's the end of his act, because my whole act was being an underdog. And so uh, I wrote One Man Megamyth as a way to kind of like answer that question, which is even though I'm Evil Knievel, I'm the most successful person and the most beloved comedian of mine or any generation. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm still deep down flawed and human. And that's what... <laughs> uh, and if you, if you don't agree with me, you're a cunt. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was kind of... Um, that was kind of uh, what the what the what the starting point was. Is kind of like um, also uh, it was it, all of my shows are sort of autobiographical without being necessarily autobiographical. And I, I've gigged with a lot of people, uh, and you see success change people in ways. And I want it's kind of like uh, illustrate all of like the the downside and the negativity towards success. Um, and one man make a myth. Basically, the, the story of Eva Knievel is that there was a guy that would literally go out and he would risk his life every single night to entertain people, uh, much like how I risk my health and my well-being uh, just for you pathetic idiots. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, um, and um, and so I was kind of like drawing like a really arrogant parallel between me and Eva Knievel. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, Evil Knievel wasn't a very nice person and he cheated on his family and uh, he had all of these horrifically negative things to him as well. Um, and that was kind of like... I was using him as kind of like an example of what fame was. It's difficult to describe it because a lot of people haven't seen that show, clearly. But um, <laughs> but it was nominated and uh, you got no excuse. Um, I did it I did it twice in London. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I did it. I did it. Twenty six nights in Edinburgh. You know, what, what, what more do you want? Uh, <laughs> I'm doing it one last time in Wales. You can get tickets for it. It's uh, it's, it's top notch entertainment. So when we talk about the uh, when we talk about the autobiographical, like, is what? How much is there a parallel of autobiographical of what's going on in your life that you're responding to by writing? Like you say, you know, you see people around you get famous, and maybe that helps, or you know, or your or the. Arguably, the criticism that what can you complain about now because now you're more successful when that's levelled at you. To what extent did the journey that you've described through those shows reflect? <laughs> to what extent did the did that journey reflect what was going on in your life? Because you like everything. All of your shows that I've seen contain an element of heartbreak, of sadness, of torture, of of upset, of maybe of depression as well as all the high bits. You, your, your shows almost follow, like, they start really excitedly and upbeat and screaming, and then something massive happens, and then you have to recover from it, and you're kind of, you're collapsed and coming back from it. You know, you're sort of shriven during the show. So what I'm asking is, yeah, shriven. Shriven. Um, <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> so what, but what I'm asking is, to what extent do those things reflect actual stuff that's going on in your real life? Right, yeah. So um, have we actually summed up to the listeners um, what I do. I, sometimes I shout and sometimes I swear. And sometimes you sometimes swear. you shout and you and scream I, and you do poems and I, you do songs and it all falls apart and you take your clothes off. What, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. What I like to do is I like to show people, I, I like to show my audiences, some people make, like to make it look effortless, but I like my audiences to see where the money's gone. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, you know, and uh, I sweat a lot, and uh, and this year I got on an exercise machine, and I sung a song while I was, 
working out <laughs> and, and and you know i like i like and, and i think what's happened to what i do on stage has kind of evolved uh and that's not necessarily in a good way not necessarily a bad way but it's slightly changed from how it started out and i think what happened originally in 2009 basically um uh, not that i don't take responsibility for my career but um I've said yes to a lot of things that I might not have been ready for. And um, in 2009, I was meant to do a three-hander with two other comedians. And they uh, dropped out at the last minute. So I tried to... It was at the Free Fringe with uh, PBH. And I tried to pull out, and he wouldn't let me. So essentially what happened is I had to fill an hour by myself. Um, And if it had been my choice to write an hour, I don't think I would have put myself forward for that mm-hmm. I don't think I'd have gone yeah I could do an hour in fact it's the opposite I didn't think I could do an hour what sort of sets were you doing at the time were you doing fives and tens I think I was probably doing about uh, yeah fifteens maybe tens fifteens okay. uh, but I'd, I'd come from a theatre background where I'd written stuff I'd, I'd written plays dark comedies and it was always comedy but it was always sort of like dark and stuff like that and then um, I mean I'd written a play. It took me a long time to write a play, and it, it did very badly in Edinburgh. Okay. And then the next year, I'd spent something like seven years writing it, and uh, and no one came to see it, and it got bad reviews. Um, it got one star in the Scotsman, and then they phoned the next day and they said, actually, it was a printing error. <laughs> it should have been two. <laughs> um, and what people don't realise about Edinburgh is a one star is better than a two star. Because oh, two, yeah. two stars means that it's not worth seeing. One star means this is so spectacularly awful. <laughs> and we sold out the next day. It was brilliant. As soon as that one star review came out, we did really well. And we were coming out. It was a two-hander. It was a duel uh, with uh, Rob, who used to play guitar for me. And um, it was a two-hander. And, uh, and we came out at the beginning and people were... Like, every time we opened our mouth, it wasn't written like this. It wasn't written to be, like, particularly punny or anything. Like that. It wasn't written to be punny at all. But um, but we came out, and every time we opened our mouth, there'd be someone in the audience going, oh, like it was the most kind of like... And you're like, that's that's because you've read a one-star review. That's not because you... And by the end of it, we got a standing ovation. And... Um, and, and and like a real we, standing yeah, ovation. Yeah, we won them over by the end okay. of it because I think people were like, oh, it's not that bad. And, and then by one... I mean, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> I haven't spent seven years writing a piece of shit. There was this woman that came to see us who'd reviewed me throughout three or four... The first year she, she reviewed... Oh, fucking right. Claire Smith, right? <laughs> Here we go. She reviewed, she reviewed this fucking show I wrote called Christmas Tree in 2002 and her major complaint about it was uh, that it wasn't a musical, Right? We never said it was a musical, right? She was from the musical section of the Scotsman. She came to review it, and she and she, you know, and she didn't like it. And it was just like, well, fine. Then she consistently reviewed us for like the next few years, and it's just like, why are you coming? You know, you hate us. You know, you don't like us. Why are you coming? So then she gave us this one-star review, and then we had one of the best audiences we'd ever had the next day after that. It started off as a real struggle, and then it ended in the thing. Anyway, point is, I there was like songs and poetry in this little show that we wrote. Um, that sounded really... There's songs and poetry in this little show that we wrote. <laughs> but, um, but I said it. Um, and, uh, and so the next year, I thought, fuck it, I'm not going to spend seven years writing a, a play again. What I'll do is I will enjoy my life, and then uh, I gave myself something like four weeks to... I booked the space in, and I gave myself four weeks to write a poetry and music show, and we could only afford a 45-minute slot at the Bedlam Theatre in Edinburgh. 
And so we did it, and it was called A Third of the Way Done, because at the time I was 25, and the average life expectancy is 75. <laughs> so it was nice and jolly. And, uh, <laughs> and it was all about kind of coming to terms with growing up. And that was literally, there was no story, it wasn't anything like that. It was like me and Rob would sit on stage, we'd both play guitar, and we'd take it in turns doing uh, poems and monologues and songs. And it was that, and it was all around a theme of growing up. And we did that, and um, it was what it was. It wasn't the most amazing thing ever, but there were some, um, there were some bits in that that I thought were really, uh, really great. For instance, I, I, I did a poem, I, I did some blaps for Channel 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them was a poem about, you know, growing old together. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, at the end it goes, oh, we could just leave it or something. Yeah. And uh, I wrote that for that show. Okay. And um, and so there was kind of a lot that came out of that show in 2007. And then when I had to do a poetry show in 2009, because these uh, other comedians uh, stitched me up, then uh, I literally went through all my back catalogue and found bits and pieces, and I, and I, I kind of like stitched together an hour of material... And I went on, and I did it. And then I had a guest every day, so Joel Domic. I gave them three things to do. They had to, bring, they had to find a mug in a charity shop, because uh, I was on at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, about then, 3.30, and so, like, tea time. So, uh, and, and basically, my whole approach to it back then was I'm going to do an anti-whimsy show. I'm going to do, like, uh, a Josie Long show by someone that's got no ability to do it. Okay. Right? <laughs> that's got, that hasn't got enough... <laughs> Emotional sensibilities to do it, right? So, um, so I get. Uh, so, for instance, Joel was probably the best guest I had because it was just spectacular. If you if if you don't know who Joel Domit is, he's like this um, American high school <laughs> good looking. He's got an unbelievable jawline. He's such he? Yeah. he is such a bohunk, and um, and uh, t- he's the nicest guy in the world, yeah. and just I love him. Right? I, I love him, but. Uh, it's great being on stage with him <laughs> because he has got the opposite uh, personality on stage to, to uh, as me, right? So um, he can come on and he can do like five minutes of material and I can come on after him and go, is that really your best material, Joel? <laughs> 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 and completely deflate him. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> It's funny. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, so Joel would come along, and my my thing was that you, you you had to bring a mug that I could make some tea in. You had to do a party piece, and you had to do a poem, and the poem could be anything. Yeah. You know? And Joel came on uh, with a mug, and he did. He talked about the mug, and then the an audience member had to decide whether they wanted the mug made of uh, made in the mug that I had or the mug that my guest had provided. And then Joel would sit down, and I'd do another like fifteen minutes. Then. It, They'd come on and do their party piece, and then they'd sit down, and then they'd come and do a poem. Uh, and so Joel had this lovely poem that his mum wrote for him. I think that was the second time he did it, he did it twice. The first time Joel's party piece was lactating out of his nipples. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that's recorded for posterity. <laughs> He did it with this massive grin on his face and he couldn't understand why everyone was horrified by it. <laughs> and he was just like, he did it from a really sweet place and it was just, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was just like, it didn't, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that ain't milk, Joel. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was absolutely the most grimmest thing I've ever seen. Um, yeah, yeah. What a wonderful memory. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Um, yeah, so, uh, so that was, that was, uh, that was that was that thing, and when I wrote that show, um, that was I, I think 100% autobiographical. That was how I felt about things, and that was kind of exactly um, 
you know, where I was at that point in my life. And then when I had to follow it up with Keep Hold of the Gold yeah. and do a straight hour without guests, without anything, um, then that was that was actually quite a big struggle. But that was kind of like the, the show that uh, people came to see me for. Yeah, that's the, that's the show that that was the that, breakaway show, wasn't it? Jimmy Carr came to see it. And yeah, tweeted something and it, and had, it. it had he makes look fat in it and stuff like that. And, yeah, um, yeah. Bad things happening trees was a mistake, and I didn't intend to do it, but I made the best out of a bad situation. Keep hold of the gold was taking that and distilling it and going, okay, if we're gonna do an hour from scratch, yeah. how do we do that? <laughs> Nick is just one of those people in a small group with Tim Key and James Acaster, probably, and a few others, who, when I see him, he just kind of makes me want to give up. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, it's that simultaneously, God, look what this is, look what's capable in stand-up, and look what I didn't think to do, you know? He, he just does something so uniquely himself, I think, so tender and so bruising at the same time, and obviously very, very funny throughout, really theatrical, and that's what we're talking about here. He's clearly very articulate about that process and his reasons for engaging with it in, in that way. Um, so thanks to Nick. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I had a great time at the festival last Sunday with, with Nick's show and then with my own preview at Bob Slayer's Heroes of Fringe. So uh, thanks to Bob as well. And thanks to you if you came along to one of those. And uh, hello as well to uh, Leanne and also to Alex Hilton, who was kind enough to, they were both kind enough to come along. Great to meet you, Alex. Um, no video of this episode, sadly, but remember you can watch video highlights of the previous five episodes with Tony Law, Bo Burnham, Norman Lovett, Susan Kalman and Marcus Brigstock. They're all at youtube.com slash comcompod. Uh, and a little bit of advertising before we go back to Nick. A week on Sunday, that's the 2nd of March, if you're near Wolverhampton, you can come and see a live special Comedians Comedian with... I paused there because I was going to say ComCom, and I just think it's a bit lazy. Um, you can come and see a live special Comedians Comedian with... I'm so pleased to finally get him on the show. Gary Delaney is going to be doing a set and then talking to me afterwards. So I, I've got lots of things to ask Gary. He's got a lot to say about comedy. That's going to be brilliant. If you're anywhere in the Midlands, come down to the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. You, could, you can get tickets from the Arena Theatre website. Um, that is the 2nd of March. And if you're on Leamington the following day, if you're in Leamington on the following day, on the 3rd of March, you can come down to LAMP, which is the Leamington Arts and Music Project, and see me do a preview with James Acaster. We're doing an hour each, and I'm going to insist on going first, because I've seen his new hour, and I don't want to follow it. Um, tickets for that are available from Reckless Comedy. Have a Google of that. I don't have time to look at the blurb. Uh, and as a blurb, I've just used blurb to mean website <laughs> but you can find it as ever if you're enjoying the show you can donate using the paypal button at comedianscomedian.com a million thank yous to those people who've been doing that and who continue to do that it means the world to me thank you very much uh now let's get stuck straight back in this is nick helm when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Were those things, were the things you, like, he makes you look fat, for example which is, for those who don't know, is a, a sort of <laughs> kind of a, a love song, an attempt to woo someone by pointing out yeah. that their boyfriend make, is so perfect, they're too perfect for them. Yeah, um, so basically it's, it's, it's a love song about undermining uh, yeah. the person you fancy in order to break them and get them to go out with you. Yeah. So which, in that... a way, is the most romantic of all, <laughs> of all songs. But, but so when, when the fact that that was in that show, does that mean that at the time you were lusting after someone who had too perfect a boyfriend? Was it? You know what I mean? Is it mirroring your actual experience at the time, or is that did that mirror something that maybe happened to you ten years ago when you were a kid, or was it just completely created because you thought it because you thought it was funny? Um, he makes it. In fact, came out with uh, as um, uh, a title first. And uh, I was writing a musical, which I never got around to finishing, called uh, Bloat the Homer. Um, <laughs> for those at home, my face is quite deadpan now. <laughs> um, and um, it was called Bloat the Homer, and I, it was all about like the, the seven stages of masculinity, and it was basically taking uh, musicals and using the structure of The Wizard of Oz, uh, where a man is dumped by a girl for not being manly enough, and then he goes through the land, okay, yeah. meeting other men, and they go on a quest to find out who's the manliest man of all. It's better than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and He Makes It Fat was the title for a song there, and then I, literally I had this title in my head, and then I had to, I had a, I had a, uh, I had a preview, uh, funnily enough, in Leicester, yeah. and uh, I think the preview was on Sunday, which was Valentine's Day, uh, so it's literally, this is the 16th of February, isn't it, so this is literally what... Um, Four years today or five years today? Right, yeah. The, uh, the, the gap that the some people t- at home can't hear because the gentleman isn't mic'd, is that from someone saying four years ago because you were here? I think it was... Yeah, is, are you sure it was four years ago or five years ago? Yeah, it's either four or five years ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, five festivals, four years, right. So what happened was on like the Friday or the Saturday, I was... Uh, in great need of material and I'd done Bad Things Happening Trees at Leicester before and that had gone well and so this year I had to come up with a fucking show (laughs) and I didn't have one and that's what's great about the Leicester Festival uh, in terms of not just I know this isn't for Leicester but in terms of uh, getting ready for Edinburgh Leicester is the the festival that you book yourself into because it kicks you in the arse to write something Um, so in a way you're all being used. <laughs> right? but, um, no, no more so than any other audience, but, arguably. But, um, but it's, it's, it's great. So anyway, so I had to write a fuckload of material for the Sunday. And um, uh, so I had this title, He Makes You Look Fat, and I, and I stood in front of um, like a music stand with a piece of paper there, and I literally improvised the song. And it came out in about five minutes. I think it's a two and a half minute song. And I did it, I wrote it all out in five minutes. And I had too much. And then I structured it. And I came to Leicester on a Sunday with this new song that I thought was going to be amazing uh, called He Makes Look Fat. Actually, I never think any of my material is going to be amazing. So I didn't think it was going to be amazing. But I thought, you know, let's give it a go. And um, 
We did it, and there was, uh, it was at the Belmont Hotel, right? And uh, there was nine people in the audience. And the real mixture of, of people, there were like men and women and different ages and stuff, but nine. And there was a couple, weren't there? There was a, a Brazilian woman. She was Brazilian? Argentinian. Uh, <laughs> so, for the benefit of the uh, podcast, we've got... Uh, uh, Nick's memory personified in the in the audience. Rob Rob from Leicester is uh, uh, Rob from Leicester. He's been database. one of my support most supportive uh, fans for uh, for the last ten minutes. As, uh, <laughs> as, uh, no, uh, for, since 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 four or five years ago. Um, so so yeah. So there was this uh, Argentinian woman in the front row, and she was you know gorgeous, and uh, she was with her boyfriend. They looked like a very happy couple. And it was the first time I'd ever performed this song, He Makes You Look Fat. And I hadn't worked out the, f- you know, how to, how to do it, you know. The point of what I do is no matter how much I shout and no matter how angry I am and no matter how much I'm like railing against people, the point at the end of the show is that it should be cathartic and you should come out feeling better than you were in the first place. So, um, so I don't want anyone to leave like upset by what has happened you should all be leaving on like a high like life I don't see the point in celebrating life by going isn't life all fucking <laughs> you know candy floss and roses and all of that you go isn't it hard but at the end of it either A at least you're not that guy on stage or B fuck it I've been through that and you know what I can laugh about it you know and there's a positive side to it where you can take something that's actually negative and this is I suffered from huge depression when I was at university and you can I, I at the time I just used to think you can either let it consume you and you can lose a couple of years of your life or you can actually sit down and you can get something positive out of it so I used to just write down all of my feelings and how I felt about it and make comedy out of that and um, now I feel a lot better about life, and I can't write. Um, <laughs> I'm writing material about M and M's world. What the fuck is that about? <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, the happier you get, the less you've got a fucking say about it. It's a it's a double-edged sword. You know what? Let's reward that person for making us see life in a new way. Thank you, Nick Helm. You're amazing. And by all of your fucking compliments, <laughs> you've made me... No, but that, that's what happens. <laughs> We're joking here. But are we? Um, I want to talk to you about... So I just need Go to on. finish this Make You Look Fat thing, because yeah. there was this absolutely amazing oh, of course, yeah. uh, Argentinian woman and her boyfriend. And so I was singing this song, but I had to read it off a piece of paper because I'd just written it. And I was singing the song going, oh, I've seen your new boyfriend, he's really good looking. And everyone's laughing, right? There were nine people, but they were all laughing. And Rob was next to me and he was playing the guitar and I was just singing off this piece of paper going, yeah, if he was a rent boy, he merely makes you look fat. And I didn't know at that stage that I shouldn't deliver it to people specifically. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um... <coughs> Especially not people whose first language isn't English, right? <laughs> so I, I did this, I, I kind of directed the song, right? And at the corner of my eye, I'm going, uh, oh yeah, she is bloody loving this. <laughs> Her shoulders are jiggling. She's got a she's got a, a face in her hand. She's bloody loving it. <laughs> so I can see this set of my And then uh, I finished the song. Gets like a smattering of applause. And when I look, because there's only nine people, not because it isn't excellent. And um, <laughs> and I look up, and there's this woman. She's got mascara all down her face. 
on Valentine's Day <laughs> in front of her boyfriend in an underpopulated comedy gig, right? Where I've come out and I've, she thinks that I've just called her fat for the last three minutes, right? And it's just like, why would I? Why would I do that? Why would I? And I was much less shouty back then. I was much more, um, you know. Uh, sensitive and um, and so I literally I think I did it like I had 20 minutes left of the show and I spent the last 20 minutes apologising to her and that didn't help though did it it didn't help <laughs> <laughs> giving her Jaffa cakes is the worst thing like <laughs> you're not fat love in fact come on let's feed you up that's fucking it was the wor- it was literally the worst thing it was the worst thing that's ever happened just like no that's the opposite that's, that's the opposite of what I wanted um, to, to make what 15 15% of your entire audience cry <laughs> out of being horrific on Valentine's Day oh fuck me that was awful um, so yeah so, uh, so I almost dropped that song and never did it ever again and then uh, someone said, actually, yeah, that you should do it again. So I did it again. And then that's the one thing that anyone really knows me for, if at all. Do you think that that, that song... <laughs> I hate that song. <laughs> really? That song in particular? I, I didn't realise that that's... Is that more popular than the, your other songs? That, that song is... The, that's the song that I did on Russell Howe's Good News that that's everyone it. liked. And uh, that's the one that people cut out and said, oh, yeah, that's a good song. And that's the song that people say, yeah, we don't... I'm not sure about your other songs, but that's the song we like. And everything else I kind of sweated over, and that's the one that took five minutes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's... Uh, no, but I, I don't really hate it. I like, I, like, I like everything that I've... You know, I, I like the fact... If people like it, then I'm really proud of that. Uh, and if that's the only thing, then great. Just, just going back to what you were saying before about... Well, two things, really. It seems like to end up with... Uh, to end up being Nick Helm, like a good way to create Nick Helm would be to have someone with loads of theatrical dreams and, and hopes and what, who wanted to make a piece of theatre and for them to go to the Edinburgh Festival and be kicked and savaged by a critic over and over again. That seems like a very... Like, I really can... Uh, did you see where I'm going with this? I kind of feel yeah, like... Yeah. like because, because of what you are on stage now, where you're, for want of a better word, clown, your persona, the game you're playing is you're not giving me enough, you cunts. Like that's your thing, isn't it? But that is actually... I mean, I used to do that in Edinburgh uh, when I was... I, you know, you'd go up with your hour or whatever or, or with your show. I mean, all, the other thing is, uh, as a club comedian, I try and make whatever club sets that I do as theatrical as possible with like sure. an, an emotional storyline and with kind of like, oh, my God, and there's like highs and lows and it starts off as one thing and halfway through is a breakdown and then at the end everyone's singing and, and then it's like, how are you going to fucking follow that? We better make him a headliner. And uh, yeah. that's kind of like how that happened. And then with... Um, is that is, is it really? Did, is it that, was that was that an ele- was there an element of that like so that you could be a headliner? Or no, was it, it purely out of a theatrical it wasn't, creative. Thing? It, was, it wasn't cynical like that. It was really just um, you know uh, I can't. It's, it, I think it comes from like a, trying to distract people, you know, from the, your inabilities. You always like to do what you, you, I always play to my strengths rather than my weaknesses. So I'm not a great anecdotal comedian. Uh, <laughs> I believe that started <laughs> back in the day um, 
And I'm not a great, uh, you know, uh, so I look at someone like James Acaster and I go, well, I can't do that. Uh, so I think, well, um, how how can I still be legitimate? And mm. so in the end, you just, instead of looking around you what everyone else does, you look to yourself and you go, well, what can I actually do? I can... And so what, in terms of your, the, the starting points for you, that period of depression where you were writing down your feelings, yeah. that was one of the things that then when you had to fill an hour, you had all those pieces of writing. I've always written. I mean, yeah. I've written from... So now it's kind of like... Um, uh, I mean, you do get to a stage where, where it is difficult to write things and it is difficult to have, like... Um, I think... I think over the last three years, certainly. So I did Keep Hold of the Gold, and then Dead's Dream was slightly scary. It was a really scary show. And then I did a show called uh, This Means War, which was just carnage um, in uh, bad and good ways. And then I did uh, One Man Megamyth this year, which is all about the arrogance and all of that. But certainly since Keep Hold of the Gold, what I do on stage has turned into almost like, um, you know, volume control where I think that my favourite show was Bad Things Happen in Trees, and now that I'm kind of writing a series uh, for telly, I'm very aware of how I want to present myself. Okay. And it's not... I get asked a lot, you know, um, in interviews and stuff, uh, you know, oh, you're very shouty and aggressive, or you're a bit of a bully, and that was never what I set out to do, and I don't think that's really a fair description of what I do either but I'm very aware at this moment that I'm going through a stage where I'm looking at everything that I've written mm. and trying to get back to kind of a balance where it's not just all shouting it's not just mm. all at 11 it's kind of like it's like you know a mixture of everything because that's what it essentially started off as it was kind of like it was all about emotions and whereas I'm not an observational comedian, I'm not an anecdotal comedian, but what I can do is I can kind of describe emotions and how we feel. And when I'm angry on stage, that's because I'm trying to kind of like uh, demonstrate how we're all angry. This is pretentious, isn't it? And then, Keep going. But, but when, when, I, when I'm angry on stage, I'm trying to demonstrate how we all get angry. And then for people in the audience, it's cathartic. And then for when I'm happy, it's like joyous and everyone else is, you know. And you're kind of trying to kind of like represent how everyone feels. And if I am a bully, I like to think that I'm a bully to the bullies, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm standing up for people in the audience who, um, you know, if someone's talking through my show, then I'll do it because I think it's funny. And uh, and really, they shouldn't be talking. And it's a waste of everyone's money around them. And people have got babysitters in. And so I'm sticking up for my audience by doing that. I'm not picking on my audience. And if there's people that, uh, you know, every year, it's kind of like sometimes I'll make a friend in the audience and sometimes I'll find an enemy in the audience and sometimes I'll find you know, a lover in the audience or whatever, but there'll be kind of different aspects on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was it's wondering. A, it's actually. Not, it's, it's, but, but I feel like I've kind of. What happens is the more the, the more busy you get. I was going to say successful, but I mean, the, but uh, the more busy you get in the year, the less time you have to devote to writing uh, your Edinburgh hour. I've always done Edinburgh, and I'd like to think that I've done Edinburgh since uh, school plays in '97. So I've done I've done it for fucking ages. 
And um, and I was meant to have a year off this year, and I'm doing it this year. I'm, do, I'm not doing the full run, but I couldn't not do You're it. You're going to do an Edinburgh run as well as write a series? Well, because I reckon that the series comes out in autumn, so it'll be like the best bits from the series that I can... But it'll be on, like, on the free fringe, and it'll be more of a fuck-around like I did in 2009 than... When you have people saying, right, you're in a 250-seater venue, you've got... Uh, this amount of money behind you. Um, I put all of my own money into my shows as well. I mean, um, so people were like saying, oh, this is what Nick Helm looks like on a budget. It's just like, well, no. I was told last year when I did One Man Megameth that I was in a, the biggest venue I've ever played in Edinburgh, uh, but I wasn't allowed a band. And I tend to use the band to kind of fill the stage up. So then I was in a position where I've got to do the smallest show I've ever done mm. in the biggest room I've ever done mm. with people that have just started to get to know me off of doing huge spectacles. So, not glasses, but like... <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> um, and um, and uh, uh, so you're kind of painted. I was. I felt like I was sort of painted into a corner. So, and also, I had less time to write it than any other year. I think I had something stupid like three months to write it, and I would normally take. Um, I'd normally start work um, January. I'd think of it over Christmas, and then work in January and work constantly up till August for something that I can't tour because it's too big and it involves David Trent, and he is the most sought after act. In England. <laughs> so you've got to kind of, as soon as you start introducing the band members, you've got to juggle other people's uh, yeah, sure. you know, time. So I can't really tour my shows. Um, so so I, I, I had spent two and a half to three months writing one my Megameth. Um, and it was just, so when you've got a short amount of time, you go, well, what works? Well, what works is opening big, closing big, having a breakdown in the middle, and this kind of, and then you end up like, what was good about it originally was that it wasn't a formula, and then you end up realising that you've got a, This is more of a breakdown than what I do on stage. <laughs> I'm literally unravelling. You know, I'm giving Mish, away... I owe you a pound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving away everything. Uh, but, yeah, but I, so I think that... Um, well, uh, I was going to ask about that, about the, just on the subject of the, the formula, and I don't know if formula is the right word, but it, because you're doing that cathartic journey, which seems to be born of your... Uh, your intentions and in your, your origins as a playwright, that you want to be writing something that is a, is a whole spectacle in itself, but it has an element of catharsis, just, and it feels like a play. It, yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's like a full-on uh, show, isn't it? And, it and, and kind of like you're making people um, um, experience something. Like when I did Dare to Dream, there was a guy that came out to me, and he said, oh, God, that was like the sore ride at Thorpe Park, right? And you go, well, yeah, I know. And what I could have done was just done uh, like an hour of stand-up, and that would have been fine as well. But um, what we did was did something different, and that's kind of... Yeah. You know, do, do you think that there is a longevity to the formula? Do you start to feel now? It sounds like, I mean, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that, are you saying that, that you can keep recreating that journey because it's so archetypal, because it's so kind of birth, death, resurrection... No, I don't. I don't think. I think you've. I think it's. It's more. De- I think, you know. I my. I get criticism saying that. Oh well, it's kind of similar to what he did before, or whatever, which would imply that there isn't much longevity to it. But the thing is, you know, if you look at Jimmy Carr, he's got who I like, 
But he's got like 17 DVDs that are all the same format mm-hmm. of him coming out and doing jokes. So the thing is, nobody questions if you're telling jokes. Oh, well, that's kind of similar to last year's because the material was sure. different. But what I get is I get, well, that's kind of, it's just like, well, it's kind of similar to last year in the sense that you came in and I took you from one place to another. Mm-hmm. But every single joke in there and every single song and every single poem and every single concept in there is a completely yeah. different thing. Sure. And then, but, is, but if you are telling a story throughout it, is that not the downside of... Like, there's a lift. If you're telling a story, that gives you certain huge benefits in terms of an hour. But then maybe you need to tell a different story. You know, you need to tell something that is... Uh, yeah, and it's all about finding what that relationship is that yeah. year. Like, uh, this year, um, you know, I have, a, I have a reputation for doing like audience participation. And this year, I didn't really want to do much audience participation because I didn't really you know, have a great idea for it. Or I didn't really, oh, I felt like I've done that and I don't want to be that guy. But, um, so I kind of like gave it a bit of lip service and I brought some people on and then took them straight off again and I kind of like, well, that was that bit. Now mm. let's get on with the new stuff. But I think there is a thing, well, here's, here's the thing. Because I am so, I am re- relatively unknown on the grand scheme of things. Um, I think what, the position that you're put into is that I did keep holding the gold in that room where people really liked it and then when I did Dare to Dream you've sort of got to introduce people to what you do whilst at the same time uh, moving it on for the people that have come back so you're kind of like trying to make two groups of people happy your old fans and Mm -hmm. your new fans Mm -hmm. and then in between Dare to Dream and This Means War I did Live at the Electric and we got a lot of we got a lot of people to come and see us based off Live at the Electric. So in that time, you go, well, well, I had a band on Live at the Electric, so I've got to have a band on stage because that's what they're going to see me for. And at the same time, they'd never heard of me, and I've got to reintroduce them to what I do and still create a new show for the people that are coming to see me based on... Keep up. Sure. And then with this year, it's just like, right, well, I've still got to do the same thing again, because, but hopefully there'll be a stage when you can just kind of take the whole audience with you each time you go on stage yeah. as opposed to having to um, start at the ground floor with some people and kind of, you know, it's, quite, it's, a, it's a balancing act. It's, it's interesting. I wonder if it's almost a bit paradoxical that for someone who on stage appears to just... And part of what we as an audience celebrate is the fact that you don't give a fuck. You're smashing, you know, boundaries all over the place, clambering amongst us, sweating, often getting people on stage. And what we're loving is the fact that there are no rules and there's no sense of control or responsibility that actually you as the performer feels an enormous amount of responsibility to give us that very thing. Yeah. Well, it's not an accident, is it? I mean, it's not like... <laughs> yeah, you, you do a gig like today. You know, we were all in this gig today, and that's uh, and you've got people talking at the back. And I don't mind if people are talking. I don't mind if people go for a wee or anything like that. But it seems like at this stage, when you're in the preview stage, it would be a complete waste of an opportunity to not have a go at them because <laughs> you never know what gold might came out, come out of it. Yeah, and, okay. And yeah. not just the gold that comes out in the toilets, am I right, guys? Um, <laughs> uh, you never know what gold might come out of it because uh, I, I write on stage. I'll have, like, notes um, in like M&M's world and, uh, and I'll see where that goes. And if it doesn't go anywhere, I'll drop it. But if it goes somewhere and it builds and builds and builds... Then, um, so, but presumably with the M&M's world bit, and I don't want to sort of give too much away, but given that we... Yeah, don't you don't want to give anything away on that one, Stu. Yeah. <laughs> well, it has a proper punchline at the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you, but you yeah, have that but, when you say you write on stage, you're bringing the like the bare bones. Well, that's of a true joke. story. Yeah, sure. So all you're doing is you're like trying to explain the the story. I mean, that happened. Me and James Acaster in Eminem's world, and that all happened. And then, yeah, what the fuck are you talking about, mate? A specialist tour. Yeah, um, sure. But like, um, but that happened to both of us, you know, at the same time. Yeah. And then I said the thing, and then you say to James. Are you going to do that, or am I going to do that? That's yeah, always the thing with yeah, James, yeah, isn't it? And he goes, "I'm not going to do it." And, I'm <laughs> like, and I go, "Brilliant!" Uh, but I didn't realise what James meant by that, and that was that's such a rubbish anecdote, Nick. <laughs> uh, it's good enough for Lester, though. So let's see. Um, no, um, but, but you come on with the anecdote, and then what? You're that process of mining. Let's just focus on that. When you're writing on stage, you've got. You well, know, I'll tell you what. A better example would be would be the cocksucker material. Yeah. Where I wrote that as I mean, you know, you try and make it look like it's spontaneous, but in actual fact that you've you've tried it out and then you build it and build it and build it and build it until eventually um, it's a thing with a punchline. And then it goes, oh, but when you start, you don't have that punchline. You, you say that punchline once by accident, you know, uh, especially with something that's so, so fragile as kind of listing other comedians. In mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like you don't want to be, you know, shooting yourself in the foot by kind of like insulting people that you actually work with. Because I, the, the, I think it's all done in character. You know, where literally I am saying that you know, cocksucking is the equivalent of performing and giving everything you've got to your audience. Uh, and as a result, that gives me free reign to call every single comedian I know a cocksucker and then say that I'm the best out of all of the cocksuckers. And that's kind of like you're taking the piss, aren't you? You're self-grandizing. But, sure. I mean, it's and, not, and in terms of what jokes never work when you explain them, but you know, and, and, and to be fair, everyone got the joke, but it's um, yeah. But that's a good example of a thing where you, that you write on stage. So you, so which bit of that did you bring on stage, or did you just, just one time just, you were calling people cocksuckers it, and you went, hang on a minute, there's a way to do this legitimately? Yeah, just the, just the comparison. Just to legit, do you know what? I mean, it's just like, like, oh, man, I. I, I People don't. People take me for granted. Right? <laughs> right, I started a show last year where I came out saying I got the whole audience to chant "Nick Helm is fucking amazing" whilst jumping on a mini trampoline, uh, and then by the end of it, I told the whole audience to fuck themselves. <laughs> Standing ovations. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it, it, it got nominated for an award. Nobody goes out and does that, and then yet. Yet they say, yeah, it's a bit similar to last year. Is it? Fuck you, fucking pricks. <laughs> fucking take me for fucking granted. I won't be doing this one year, you know. I won't be de- I'll be dead one year. And you'll be going, where's Nick Helm, eh? With his, with his bag of fun. <laughs> this little bag of tricks, fucking... No, yeah, but, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. You just try and do stuff and see what works and what doesn't when you're, What sort of decisions are you making on stage then? When you're, when you're in, in the moment and you are improvising something... What, like, are you out of control completely? Are you trying to just put anything out there and see if it's, is it, is it like you're kind of, you know, roughing the paint all over the canvas to see what, what emerges? Or what, what sort, what's the experience of doing it? Well, I'm quite a moral person and I've got kind of like a quite a strict, you know, uh, guideline of what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not comfortable with. So you could say I'm out of control, but it's always within those kind of, moral guidelines of what I will and won't do and what I will and won't make fun of and make jokes about and stuff like that. I don't think in the grand scheme of things I'm actually particularly controversial. 
People s- seem to think that I'm controversial, but I think that's because they've misunderstood what I do. I don't see shouting and swearing as controversial. I don't see swearing as controversial. I don't see anything like that as controversial. And it's all about the context at the end of the day, anyway. But, um, yeah, I'm not a controversial comedian. So I just think you come out and you try stuff. Also, it's a comedy thing. You know, even the people that were talking at the back when I was having a go at them, having a go at them, knew that I was, um, I was joking. Sure. It is, but, you know. Um, so. But I just... I and what? also, uh, but what if I wasn't joking? The fact is, they were in the wrong... Mm-hmm. They were talking. All I was doing was pointing that out and and having a go at them. But sure. I did it in a way that made everyone feel part of the fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> As what, opposed to I'm a asking. way that made everyone feel slightly awkward that I'd kind sure. of got up my own ass. I suppose what I'm what I'm asking is like you've obviously during your career you have found a thing which a moment ago you said. Um, yeah, someone got up to go for a piss. Of course, I'm going to jump on that because th- some gold might come out of that. So that process of looking for... <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> but that process of knowing that if you get in a confrontation with someone, then stuff... I mean, that is incredible. That is incredible timing. Biggest fan. <laughs> he does that once an hour, you know. <laughs> You, you must, what I'm trying to unpack is the instincts that you're following when you, like, you know, for example, that if you have a go at someone, chances are that will trip something that will then come out of you. You'll be more creative because of it or because you're, find, you're being more provocative because of it. What, I, what is I, that? I find material, especially my material, <laughs> quite boring. <laughs> um, and uh, you never know what, you know, oh, yeah, brilliant. We can do this stuff that I have written down, that I've got a pretty good idea that might work and all of that. Or we can do something that's actually uh, in the moment and kind of um, uh, exciting for me. Also, the more you mess yourself up, the more it's, the harder it is to get back to your show and your material and to tie things up and to kind of leave the stage so that everyone feels like they've had something satisfying. Um, and that doesn't always work. Sorry. And um, <laughs> and um, uh, but sometimes it does work, and sometimes you go, oh wow, and you've got to try. And because that. the leap has been further. Because by smashing up, by by making it, by giving yourself less chance of somehow pulling it all back together, when you do, it's more satisfying. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, but also, as it's work in progress, you kind of you know, there's a certain amount of. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just I just do things that I think are funny, really, and I and I feel, yeah. So if people find it funny, then that's great. And if they don't find it funny, I don't do it again. Um, but what is the most satisfying thing in the world is to go up to someone in the front row and call them a cunt. Uh, and then have them come up to you afterwards and shake you by the hand and say thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, and the thing is, people say, "Oh, whoa, that's." But I mean, that's clearly trial and error. Yeah, you don't just <laughs> you you don't suddenly think I know what's a good idea <laughs> and then do it. <laughs> right? You kind of like ease your water, you ease your foot in the water, don't you? You kind of like go, "All right, you wally." <laughs> 
got away with that one. <laughs> and then, did you, is that where that came from? Did you did you launch into calling people cunts? When what, what was the first confrontation like that you remember? I'll t- tell that? you where that comes from. Um, that 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 actually comes from uh, Edinburgh and doing gigs in front of. Uh, I remember we did a gig. Uh, there was um, it was the year Angelos first did Shooting Stars, and Shooting Stars was uh, being broadcast on TV. I think, or it was close to being broadcast on TV, just as uh, Angelos... So nobody in Edinburgh knew who Angelos was, but at the same time, he was huge on telly. Like he was doing this... Is it BBC Two? And he, he was just this massive thing. And uh, I did a gig with him. Um, there were... You know, there was about four other acts, and we were there, and it was a rainy day in Edinburgh, like in the mid-afternoon, and literally, one by one, we all went up on stage and died in front of nine people, or eight people, or whatever. Not all of my gigs in front of nine people. But it was a, it was a low... Uh, it was, I, w- I looked to you to confirm it, but this was a different gig. <laughs> and, but this is... You know, there was a really low, low number of people that were in the room, and you go, oh, God. And, like, and nobody... None of the acts wanted to be there. Uh, n- none of the audience wanted to be there. They weren't enjoying it. it was the, everyone was just in there to get out of the rain, you know. And uh, in one by one, we were going up, and it could have been a really nice gig, and uh, and it was just rubbish. And uh, and then by the time it got to me, I was so frustrated with how it was going. I was just like, "Why are you here?" You know. But I was screaming it. I'm <laughs> just like going, "Why are you here? You know, what a waste of your time. What a waste of our time. You know, wh- why don't we just call it quits and just fucking leave, right? Why don't we just fucking go to the bar, have a drink? We'd all have a much better time where we can chat, right, to each other. Not each other, but you can talk to your friends and we can just fuck off and do something better with our lives, you know? Right? And then, and then the, the audience didn't really laugh, but the acts laughed. And, <laughs> uh, and then it was kind of like it kind of saved the gig for us morally uh, you know uh, for, for us in our hearts it was just kind of like oh you know what it was a good idea to do this with our lives you know, this wasn't a huge mistake and we kind of like and, and then Angelos went on dressed up in a cat suit where you could see his penis and balls through the through this shiny kind of like but he and he did this song like dressed up as a cat to nothing right? <laughs> <laughs> and it went on for like 15 minutes and the audience gave him nothing and I think that is what really summed up Edinburgh for me right at that point was just kind of like this is like you just look at that and you go that is clearly funny right that's clearly just funny and the fact that nobody is laughing at it for me makes that even funnier I think <laughs> I think that that is just one of the best things you know it was it was great um and so from that, it was just kind of like, there's a lot of apathy in Edinburgh. And then you go, right, well, let's just fucking... You, you know, as, as much as you want to think that Edinburgh's... Not you, but like as much as one wants to think that Edinburgh is kind of like their moment to shine, the, in reality, the people are going to see nine shows a day. They're fucking dead on their feet. They sit down and they fall asleep in your show. And then they go off and see something else. And at the end of the month, they can say, I saw... 97 shows right but um, it's you know people people aren't there because you're special people are there because it's something to do and what I try and do is just wake people up <laughs> so that at least they're paying attention so think, so given sorry to interrupt but okay so given that that that's definitely 
that's definitely an idiom of yours, is that you come on, bang, shouting, waking them up, and kind of like, sort of, you know, rolling them, you know. that, but also, um, you know, there's songs, there's poetry, there's one-liners, there's stories, there's uh, audience participation, there's props, there's stunts, there's costumes, there's set, there's all these, there's a band sometimes, there's all this visual stuff, and it's kind of like going like... You change what you do every five minutes because that means that the audience are kind of like, they can't second guess it. They're like going, oh, 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 yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> and, um, and so, so, so that's, so that's kind of, um, that's where the thinking is. And it's also kind of like, if you didn't like that bit, don't worry, there's another bit coming along. Um, and, you know. With a view to doing heavy entertainment, which is your new solo TV show. Yeah. Um, not as opposed to Uncle, in which you're, you're you know, a comic actor, but I'm, it's written by someone else. I'm a puppet. <laughs> um, and we, I don't think we've got time to cover Uncle as well, but what I wanted to ask was, with your show that you're writing, do, are you, do you have any concerns about the fact that, like, does it need to be uh, set like TV is? If you think of someone like Terry Alderton, it's much harder for Terry Alderton to get a spot on a TV show because he, he's really wild and random. You're very wild and upsetting and you break into stuff and clamber over people. Uh, do you have concerns about how that will translate to television? Yeah, um, that's, what the, that's what the hardest thing about it is. Because um, we did the pilot when we did the... I don't know if anyone... Um, I don't know how many people saw it, but it wasn't loads. Um, but we did... Thanks, Rob. Um, <laughs> but when we did the pilot of Heavy Entertainment, um, they told me, end of January, do you want to do a series of Heavy Entertainment? And I said, I'd just done first series of Live at the Electric and I hadn't enjoyed it because we were on last and the audience is left for the tube when we were on stage doing it. And, uh, and you're, you're watching the audience is like flooding out and you're going, you, you, literally your dreams are dying in your eyes. <laughs> and you're going, there's a fucking camera on me. <laughs> Smile. <laughs> um, and so Live at the Electric, found quite, uh, and I didn't really enjoy the kind of experience of doing like live TV, uh, not live TV, but TV in front of a live audience. So when they said, do you want to do like a thing in front of an audience? I said, uh, no. And then they said, well, you've got five weeks to do it because it's got to be made and edited by the end of the tax year. That's like, showbiz. That's showbiz. So I thought, right, well, I can either go five weeks or I can go five weeks. Um, and I thought, well, five weeks isn't so long to do a project that I don't really want you know, hadn't really made my mind up with. It's not going to take the rest of my life. It'll take five weeks, and then it'll be over, and then I'll write Edinburgh. And uh, so we did that, and um, and it was kind of interesting. Uh, but I didn't 100% love the last project product of it. I kind of found that difficult. I think the problem with it is that um, the problem that I have with it is that it is. It's what I do is all about the audience, and it, it doesn't nothing always works. You know, things don't always work, but um, the fact that I'm saying it is sometimes the joke as opposed to what I'm saying. And um, and it's very difficult to illustrate that when you've got a camera on your face and everything is at face value. You know, it's kind of like, I've said a joke, like the, my one-liners, they're kind of good, they're kind of bad. Sometimes they're shit. But do you know what I mean? It's like... Um, yeah, part, of, part of the joke is you've the had joke, the temerity to tell a part joke Part of the joke shit. is that I'm yeah. saying these are the best jokes you've ever fucking heard yeah. and there's explosions coming after them and they're just slightly weak cracker jokes, <laughs> you know? Um, and kind of that's the joke. But when you're saying them directly to a camera, it's face value and you go, well, this joke is shit. 
how dare he say that on my telly? He's like, you're not even watching, mate. You're on Twitter, right? <laughs> and um, and so, so, so part of that is like trying to find a way, now that we've learned, oh, well, I learned so much from doing the pilot, part of it now is like trying to find a way to translate what I do on stage into a television um, scenario because that's kind of, that's where it will be made. Away. It's a massive, it's very stressful. Because in a way, like, it doesn't have to, you know. I'm not, I'm, my material at best is weak. <laughs> That's clearly not the case though. But, well, I'm very hard on myself and, um, and um, uh, I, 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 I think your, your performance is so strong. I mean, your performance is incredibly strong. I think your material's really strong as well. But if you're, but it, so what are you saying? That it feels like if you have your performative legs taken out from underneath you because of the different context... I think that the performance is, is such a big part of how I develop the material in the first place. Uh, it's not what I say necessarily, it's the way I say it. So, um, so yeah, so it's kind of like, it, it, it's a difficult thing. I can't write it down as a script, you know. And that's, sure. that's one of the things they want me to do. And it's kind of difficult to kind of like work it all out. But I'm working it out, you know, it's kind of... But this is literally new for me. And this isn't something that I've necessarily said... I've got this great idea for a TV show. I'm kind sure. of working backwards where I'm going, I've got this thing. It's like problem solving. But it's the same with Edinburgh. And you go, at first I was doing Edinburgh because I'd love to do it. And then you're yeah. kind of like, okay, I've got to do another one. How do I do it? And sure. So it's kind of problem solving. But, which is what I'm looking forward to Edinburgh this year because it's kind of... Problem solved. It's just, piece of, you know, it's a bit of fun, isn't it? And you get to go out and play with the audience. We'll have to wrap up fairly soon. If it's all right with you, Nick, I was going to ask if anyone uh, in the audience had any questions for you. Is that... That's fine. Are you happy to speak to them? Yeah. <laughs> have a couple of minutes now to think of a question. I'll ask something else while you have a think. And then if you put your hands up and uh, ask it through me for the sake of the recording. Um, I wanted to ask what elements... You mentioned one already, that thing that you're not an anecdotalist. Are there any other things that you wanted to do when you started that you feel like you're still striving towards given that what given that the things you know that you do you're so good at are there things that you know what I mean the poems are great the shouting is great the audience stuff is great the sweating is great the tasks are funny do you know what I mean there's all of that stuff are there, are there things do you do you ever think to yourself I wish I could just do a bit more of that no not really <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a perfect storm though isn't it you go right it's, all of these bits on their own are kind of like maybe well I don't know I mean I don't I just try and just do do stuff that I want to do and uh, when I started doing comedy it was just like can I can I do comedy it's like oh well I'm alright at it and then can I make any money off of it and then you make enough money to get your travel expenses paid and you go mum guess what I got my travel paid to Leicester and back and your mum is proud and you go, that's great. And then, and then, you know, I didn't think that I would get to this point. I never, I never, not I never asked, but I never thought or tried really to get to this level because I just wanted to do stuff that I thought was good and that I liked. And, um, and now I'm at a stage where I've done a sitcom and, um, I've got a, another TV series coming up and I, I but so I'm not an idiot. It's just like, well, fuck. I might as well just do as much as I can while I can. Um, so that's all I'm doing, really. I'm just kind of like 
See, is there is there any is there any kind of master plan for you? Do you have ambitions? Do you have kind of specific like measurable ambitions? Do you want to do the band at Wembley one day? Do you want to you know? No, but if that if if an opportunity like that came along, then I would obviously take it and see. I just you know I've just you, I always said that I would never say no to something outright. I never wanted to do panel shows. I went through a long stage where I said I won't do panel shows. Uh, and then I did 8 out of 10 cats and uh, I really enjoyed it and I did it and I was fine and okay that's fine if I'd have said no to that then I would have cut off a huge point you know um, I always said that I'd never do adverts and I did uh, you know long before you know my career took off in any way but I did an advert because I had to because I couldn't afford shoes you know and then that was just like but I literally couldn't I had holes in my shoes and um like all the rainwater would come in and my feet were burning and like my feet would like burn because of the, like the acid rain or whatever because that's London and um, and I couldn't I had one pair of trousers that I had to wash every time I left the house like, well not every time I left the house like <laughs> I was a massive ejaculator back then <laughs> um, uh, but like I had to you know I had one pair of trousers and all of that stuff I couldn't afford food I couldn't afford nothing and um and then I did an advert, and it got me out of a hole. And then because I wasn't worried about money all the time because of the advert, I could write stuff. Mm-hmm. And in actual fact, you know, for any comedians that are starting out and that aren't that are going, well, Bill Hicks says don't do adverts and all that, fuck that. You know, do what, do, do what... When you get to a stage when you're Bill Hicks doing an advert, turn it down. But before then, you know, if you can't eat, then you're a fucking dick. There's nothing admirable. There's nothing admirable about dying in the gutter because because you want to be an artist, you know. Because that just means that people don't get to see what you do. So I think you know you just you know stick to your guns artistically. But the other thing is like John Lydon, he did that butter advert, didn't he? So Johnny Rotten did a butter advert, and everyone was like, "Oh God, you're so you're such a fucking sellout, John. You did a fucking advert." And he goes, "Well, yeah, but." A, I like butter. <laughs> <laughs> and B, the, with the money I made off it, I made a new album, mm-hmm. which no one was going to put the money up for. And it's kind of like you just need to... You, I think the main, if you're going to learn anything from tonight, it's that you just need to think about what you want and not try and follow what other people want, really. Are there any, are there any questions before we wrap up? Yes, there's one down the front. I'll just repeat it down the mic if you don't mind. Whoa, great question. So, Nick, uh, with, uh, with the success of uh, Uncle on BBC Three, Heavy Entertainment, and uh, Live at the Electric, also on BBC Three, are you worried that you're going to become, and there were air quotes there, a BBC Three comedian? Maybe you could tell us what you think is meant by that. I know, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and, uh, but I think that, not just BBC Three, but I think that there, uh, I think there's quite a... You know, comedy is subjective, Right. And I think that, having said that, there is quite a low standard of television comedy across the board. Um, and uh, I know what people think of BBC Three, and I, you know, can't say I don't agree a lot of the time. No, I can't. But like, um, and I think that when I was quite snobby about it, and when I was doing Uncle, I was doing Uncle, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, but. It would be nice if it was on BBC Two, you know, rather than... And I think we, we, me and Oliver, who did it, always kind of, like, had kind of, like... We thought, well, we're, in our heads we were thinking we're making a BBC Two 
sitcom that's going to be on BBC Three, and it's uh, um, we weren't sure how it was going to go down. You know, we—I was really worried. I think there's things that I've never acted before, and all of that, and um, and I didn't know. None of us knew how it was going to go down, really. And uh, and it's been really successful, and people have really liked it, and uh, people have saying nice things to me and that's great and I think now I've kind of changed how I feel about it and the thing is um, it's, uh, BBC Three people, everyone looks down on it, everyone goes BBC Three is this awful channel and the thing is Uncle's on it and if we can do a show that's good and kind of like bring people over to BBC Three then why should we run away from BBC Three as soon as we can? I'm kind of proud to be on BBC Three, and I'm proud to have a good show on BBC Three. And if I'm doing heavy entertainment for BBC Three, I want to make that as good as possible. And I want a kind of, and not like single-handedly, but if everyone tries, first and foremost, nobody sets out to make a piece of shit. And you can work just as hard on making something that's awful as you can on making something that's amazing. And it's kind of like not up to you at the end of the day, you know. I'm acting, I've got no control over the rest of it, and you kind of, it could be good, could be bad, but I'd act just as hard on anything that I did. And Oliver would write as much as he could. So it's kind of like not up to you at the end of the day. It's kind of almost um, fate. And what's good and what's bad is kind of, you know, people didn't set out to make something that's terrible. There is, BBC Three is like almost exclusively comedy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, this it's a comedy channel. You know, it's, uh, that's amazing. Um, and the fact that BBC are, are doing that, that's, that's great. So rather than kind of look down on it, you go, how can we improve it? Mm-hmm. And you stick with it, I think, is, 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 is how I'm thinking about it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Having said that, I will never work for BBC Three again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've got time for. Um, Would you please join me in thanking Mr Nick Helm? So that was Nick. Really articulate and passionate and doing it for the love of it. And just hilarious. If you're listening in another country, maybe if you've not heard of him or if you've uh, if he's somehow escaped your notice over here, please go and see him if you haven't. See him on tour. Check him out on YouTube and and indeed on BBC Three. Uh, Uncle is very very good. And uh, but also I can't wait for his series. I think he's uh, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what he does. And I have every confidence that it is going to be as funny and as exciting as all the rest of his stuff. Thank you to Nick. Thanks to Adnam, who produced the live show. Thanks to Ad's wife, Catherine, for her help. And to Russell, the sound man, to give him his full name. Thanks to Ben Lund-Conlon and Nathan Wood, who co-produced this show. Nick doesn't have any stuff on Audible, as far as I can see. But doing the little Audible plug... Oh, well, I mean, he doesn't have stuff on Audible, but you can certainly buy several of his albums on iTunes. Um, So why not do that? Go and... Go and uh, Google or YouTube a couple of his songs. If you like them, stop YouTubing them and buy them because it's consistent quality. So go and do that. But my audible plug this week, in his stead, I would like to suggest Becoming Johnny Vegas, which is uh, the Johnny Vegas autobiography. I've not actually listened to it yet. It's the first time I'll plug something I've not listened to. But it's, I mean, it's 12 motorway deleting hours of someone who I think is awesome. His, uh, I, I spoke to Johnny very briefly on Show Me The Funny. Who remembers that? And uh, I had a really good conversation with him, um, not all of which, very little of which you actually saw on the show. He is a very switched on guy. I'd love to get him on the show. I think his, uh, I'm sure that that autobiography will be fascinating. 
Um, so get to that. If you, and if you'd like to get that, remember, you get your subscription via audible.co.uk backslash cc. And that means you can help out this show at the same time. Donate on PayPal if you like. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Nick. We're back next week with the one-man sketch explosion that is Will Franken. I edited that the other day, and it is just... I didn't edit it. I listened to it. I've done very little. Um, but it's a really, really good one. And I gig with Will at the weekend. Brilliant to see his very esoteric, weird stuff really doing very well in a, a commercial Saturday night kind of a club. So look forward to that. I'll stop speaking in this sort of absurd high-speed way, um, and I'll run off and get a train immediately. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.